All right. We are going to get going. Amy had something else. Did I give that to you? I did give that to you. Uh, you'll have to hold the button. Hold that. Yep, give it a second. There you go. Amy wants to sing a song real quick. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, no, I just wanted to let anybody who is out of town that wants to donate, do a basket or adopt kiddos or anything, uh, you can bring that to church with you on Sunday, December 10th. If you're in town, the drop-off day is at the, it's at the Methodist Church between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. on December 13th. So even if you forget to bring it on Sunday the 10th, please don't. But if you do, you can um, bring it, if you come to Bible study, you can bring it that, that Wednesday as well. And I'll sneak it in there and hope that uh, can't, Linda doesn't kill me. Right. So, <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, and if anybody has any questions, reach out to me on Facebook. However, all the instructions will be on the sheets that I send you for those that have requested. Cool. Anything else? Are you sure? Okay. Well, awesome. Well, I get to go now. So we are transitioning to the final part here of this series. This is the part that we've been building up towards. It's kind of getting a foundation of everything. This is why we spend as much time as we have because the part that we're getting into is so crucial going forward. And we have to have an understanding of what it means to be in His image. And this is why we spent the amount of time that we have um, just really building that foundation to get the idea of what God had originally intended for mankind. What we are living is not God's original intention for mankind. It's just not. God created man to be a part of His family, to rule and reign on the earth, to be His representative here, His human Representative. As you guys know, there's the divine family and angels and all the other created beings. He created them with a purpose. We were created with a purpose. And because of our sin, we've never fulfilled that purpose. But the day's coming because of what Jesus has done. What Jesus did is put mankind back in the place of which they could live out and fulfill the purpose that God had originally intended for mankind to have. But we are not walking in the fullness of that today. Very few people are walking in the fullness of that today. As a matter of fact, the reason we just long for the days of revivals past and stories past of John G. Lake and Smith Wigglesworth and some of these guys that you may or may not be familiar with but had incredible miracle ministries that we go back to is because we are not walking in the fullness of the power of God today as God had originally intended. That's why we long for that. Because we long for the supernatural. That's why mankind, and, and as you see in our society today, are drawn to things that are supernatural. We've been talking about this. We've been talking about understanding what Satan's goal is in sin. It's not to just make you sin. It's to get you off track. And when I say sin, you might be thinking sin is like, oh, somebody had an affair on their wife. That's sin. Oh, they murdered somebody. That's sin. Oh, they lied. That's sin. Yes, but it's more than that. You see, the enemy may not even be able to get you to do that, but can he distract you? Who can he use in your life to pull you further and further away from God? That's the thing, is we don't recognize 
that there are people in our lives with intentionality to draw us away from God. Now, they may not even realize that they are being used by the enemy, but it's so obvious. How do we know? Well, let's look at this. Isaiah 59, verse 2. It says, Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. So we saw in the beginning where he draws Adam and Eve away from God. We see where he drew the nation of Israel away from God. Both representatives of God, the image of God. He attempts to draw Jesus away from God, and he fails. They're not temptations if Jesus wasn't tempted by them. They were promises. They were not empty promises. They were promises that he could fulfill. So it had to be a temptation because it says in Hebrews, he was tempted in all ways just like us, yet without sin. So that sin aspect is real. Why does that happen? Because it's the parable of the four soils. That the temptations, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of life, they draw us away from producing fruit. If he can get you to produce no fruit, guess what? He's won. Much of the church today is fruitless. We have filled our times with things that are good and not things that are God. We are drawn away by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of life. Do you guys realize that if in the middle of the summer the air conditioner broke, that most churches would be virtually empty? Why is that? But you go to other parts of the world, And they have to walk miles to get there. And we'll do anything they can to be in church that day. What's the difference? We're spoiled. That's the difference. Here you have options. I was talking to somebody just last week. I was talking about they tried out seven churches within a one-mile radius of their home. Not in this state. Until they found one that they liked. Do you know there are parts of the world that may not have seven churches at all? I mean, you think about the things that we take for granted. It's unbelievable. These are all things that the enemy can use. The enemy uses our families to draw us away from God. Hey, why don't you come over this weekend and let's go go visit this person or do that and stuff like that. We get drawn away. Hey, it's hunting season. Got to put meat in the freezer. I hope those deer taste bad. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, I mean, think about that. It's not like you, if you miss a Sunday, you're going to hell or anything like that. My point being is the fact that we're constantly drawn away. And what happens is this slow drift. And you may not be doing much now, but the day is going to come where you are, will be unrecognizable as far as the things of God goes. See, the purpose of a born-again believer is to do what? Be his imager. How are we doing? Not well. Because we're too caught up in other things. We've been talking about that. We've been talking about how these false teachers and false prophets come in. Get you off track from serving God. We talked about how the enemy is becoming so blatant in the entertainment industry, in the music industry. I mean, it's, it's getting bad. It's always been bad. But I mean, I had more of you guys come up and was like, man, I had no idea any of this stuff was going on. It's because you don't know what to look for. And because we just assume that everybody is good. As you, I hope you are realizing that is not the case. The persona that you see on TV, in the movies, may not be the real person. And so there are things that are undergirding all of what is happening here. 
There was something I saw just a couple months ago. I probably should have brought this up before. But a Minnesota art museum had a summon a demon day. I'm not kidding. They brought in this art group, and they were talking about how you can invite these demons and how you can embody them. And it's like, oh, it gets a bad rap, but you bring this. This is for children. Children's art museum. Bringing a family together. And they were going to do these different rituals. And that they were going to summon Lilith and some of these other demons that are well known out there. I don't want to spend all the time on that. And bring it in. And guess what? People showed up. Can you believe that? I hope so. That's society around us. You see, as society gets darker and darker, we need to be shining brighter and brighter. We're not. The church today is on a slow drift. And it happens so easily. It happens because bitterness gets in. It happens because feelings get hurt. Sometimes it happens just from sheer lethargy. Just kind of, eh, whatever, no big deal. When you begin to take those relationships for granted, when you begin to take time for granted, when you begin to take resources for granted, it all just kind of drifts away. And so we've been looking at that, of knowing who my enemy is. And it's just so that you guys are aware of the stuff that's out there, because most people have no idea. Because how many of you guys sat around one day and like, you know, I'm going to look up all the satanic symbols that are used in the music industry so I know what to look for. Adam Roberts might do that. That's, <laughs> that's right up his alley. That guy sits around and reads the dictionary because his brain grew so much his hair fell out. So. <laughs> but now we're going to shift our focus here. The who I am in relationship to him. This matters. Because Jesus came on this earth with a purpose. And we all say so that we can go to heaven. Was that his purpose? wasn't but is that what's going to be said in most churches and if you ask most christians absolutely but that really wasn't his purpose that was the byproduct same thing was praying in tongues the purpose of the baptism in the spirit nope it's a great little byproduct purpose was to be endued with power from on high so we got to get the first things first and we got to understand what christ came to do we got to understand who we are in relationship to him. And so we're going to begin to look at some verses today. And we're just going to start to introduce this idea. Because I'm telling you, church, I fully believe that there is revival coming. I say that with all sincerity. But it will not come if we don't start to get things right. What does revival look like? How does revival come? Most people honestly wouldn't want it if it came because it will require a change in your life. Your time will be used different. Your resources will be used different. And most people are just really comfortable where they are. But it's not for us to just come together and have these intense meetings where we all leave with goosebumps and feel good and, and all of that kind of stuff. That is not revival. Don't misunderstand me. Those are good. But that's not revival. Revival is when lives are being transformed. To revive something. Something that was near death coming back to life. Maybe something that was dead coming back to life. Reviving it. The church needs to revive so that we can reach this world. So as we get into this, I want you to just stay with me for a little bit as this is kind of foundational, but I want you to see something here. We're going to go to John chapter 10 today. I'm going to show you guys several verses. I'm kind of going to bounce around a little bit, but I want you to see what Jesus was saying that has been in front of us the entire time, something that we all already know and probably believe, but I don't think we get it. So we're going to start in John chapter 10, verse 22. John chapter 10. Verse 22, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. So what's the Feast of Dedication? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. you got to say it with enough phlegm. 
I don't possess that gift. Now, Hanukkah was not something that was like in, endorsed by God to say, okay, you must do this. It was something that they celebrated. There's a whole story about it. I know for some of you guys, every time the word Hanukkah is mentioned, you immediately think, Adam Sandler, just get saved. That's all I'm asking for, okay? But the, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, which means that there were a lot of people coming around. Just need to understand that. It wasn't a required pilgrimage, but a lot of people did. And it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him. Now, I'm going to stop there. When it says the Jews, were they not all Jews? Yes, they were. They were all Jews. But when it says the Jews, it's specifically referring to a certain group of people. Okay? Who is that certain group of people? The Pharisees. Certainly the Sadducees. The Essenes. These people who did not believe and did not accept him for who he was claiming to be. We'll get into that more in a minute. So the Jews around us said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just come out and say it. If it's you, just say it. What's he, what's he say in response? Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. Did he tell them? Apparently. Did they believe? Apparently not. So, he, they are not in dark for darkness sake, it is a refusal to accept it as truth. So when they're asking him, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly, don't speak in colorful words, don't give us another parable, just say, yes, I am he. He said, I told you and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because... You are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Now, this is right after the thief comes but to still kill and destroy. Understand the context. He has had three chapters of dealing with the Pharisees. The thief is not the devil. The thief is the Pharisees, the teaching that were driving them away from their Messiah. Because the Pharisees had to declare Jesus Messiah. I'll get into that in a little bit. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. You notice he didn't say, I showed them how to get to heaven. Heaven is not the goal. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now watch what he says here. This is powerful. I and my Father are one. Not two. We are one. Now this is a bold statement. It's a bold statement because what does he just put himself with? God. I am with God. My Father and I, we are one. Intertwined. You can't see where I stop and he begins. You can't see where he stops and I begin. I do the works. They have been confirmed. It is of God. We are one. How do you know that this was such a big statement for him to make? Well, look at their reaction. Verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. You see, we don't think of it as any big deal, but you have to get back to a first century Jew's mindset. Were they waiting on the Messiah? Absolutely. But he can't be it. He breaks the Sabbath. He doesn't do the things that we do. They don't fast. They don't do the things that we do. 
can't be the Messiah. For him to make the claim that he and God are one was blasphemous in their ears. They, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Now this is a beautiful response. Tell me which bad thing that I do that requires death. Remember, this is capital punishment. This is normal. This is everyday life. This is how they did things. The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So now we know what's going through their mindset. Now look how Jesus responded to them. Jesus said, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and said into the world, you are blasphemy because I said, I am the Son of God? What's he using against them? Their word, their scripture, the thing that they say they hold so dearly. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. How can they know? If they don't believe his words, how can they know that he and the Father are one? Based on the works. Because based on the works, they can't say where the Father stops and Jesus begins. Because God is good, they would say that. But he's up there. And whatever he does is good. But Jesus, not good. He doesn't do it our way. There's a difference here. Now, what works is he pertaining to? Now, I've gone through this. I'm just going to address this very quickly. Remember the four Messianic miracles. There are four things that the Pharisees believed, or the Jews believed as a whole, that the Messiah could only perform. It would only be him. There are miracles that could be performed, but only God himself could do these. Cleansing a leper, number one. They believed that was because of sin, and that is why you had it. Therefore, if it was sin, only God can remove that. The second one, casting out a deaf and dumb spirit, because they believed that they had to get the name of the demon. There was Jewish exorcism that took place, that they had to get the name of the demon in order to exorcise the demon out. And Jesus, of course, did that without doing that. The healing of birth defects, something that was given to you by God is a result of sin in your life, sin in your family's life. Somebody sinned. That's why that whole thing where Jesus healed the blind man that was blind from birth, and they're asking his parents, like, hey, like, who sinned? Well, nobody sinned, you know. Like, he's dealing with that. He was able to do that. And then, of course, raising the dead after three days. Because they believed that the spirit of the man stayed with the person up until the third day. But on day four, you could not raise them back. Only God could. So that was the belief system that they held. Jesus, of course, with Lazarus. You'll see two times in there. He mentions it was the fourth day. This was the belief that only Messiah could do. And guess who performed all of those? Jesus did. These are the works. Of course, there was many other miracles that took place. There are many other signs that took place, but these were the works. The reason it mattered to the Pharisees, and Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, is because they were in charge of the Sanhedrin, and at that time, in order for somebody to be declared Messiah, they had to do it. So they would investigate any time a miracle took place to see if the claims that were made were true. This is why they were always around, always asking questions, trying to trip him up. And they themselves would declare Messiah has arrived. Of course, they would not do that. That is why they were going over and above to make sure that this didn't happen. But the point of this is, is the thing that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, we have no problem accepting that as true. Why not? Well, we believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three separate entities, yet one. Confusing? 
Absolutely. I don't care what kind of illustration you come up with. You got the egg with the shell and the white part and the yolk. You got three strands of a cord of a rope. I mean, anything you put will not make sense to any of this because we don't get it. I don't know that we ever will get it. All right. I've heard a lot of really bad illustrations through the years, but as hard as they try, it can't work. But what we have to understand is what Jesus was really declaring. Because Jesus said some things. And one of the things he said is, the works that I do, you will do. In fact, you'll do greater works. And it's better for you that I leave, because if I stay, the Spirit won't come, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to live in you. You see, these are things that we believe, but we don't really grasp. And when Jesus was saying that I and the Father are one, that literally means that where God starts and stops, it's hard to tell. Where, where does it interject? Because if Jesus is doing the works, what did he do? I only do what I saw my father do. I only say what I see my, or hear my father say. So in John chapter 14, let's go there. Verse 22. John chapter 14, verse 22. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, which is an important notion. Okay? That's the bad one. So whoever this Judas is, this is a good one. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, he just went through this whole thing of how you're in the world, not of the world, where I go, you cannot know, etc., etc. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And watch what it says. We will come to him and make our home with him. That's interesting. Now, we take that for granted, right? That Jesus lives inside of us. He lives in our heart, etc., etc. But what was he saying here? He and the Father were one, and what are they going to do? If anyone loves me, they keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So where are they now? Look around. Now, what does that mean? See, that's the important thing. We have to understand what that means. What does that entail? What is the net result of God dwelling in us? We've got to drill into that a bit. But what was Jesus coming to do? Bring eternal life. What comes with that? God in us. Let's look at some other passages. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. Whereat? The inner man, the distinction between the outer man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Where does he dwell? In your heart. Being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. So where does Christ dwell? Where do you think we get the idea you need to ask Jesus in your heart? You didn't know, now you do. Jesus isn't standing in your heart watching blood pass your left ventricle, okay? I don't even know if that's a thing. I hope it is. I think that's a heart thing. But he's talking about where? In the inner man. You see, there's a reason for that. Where does Christ dwell? So that means if Christ dwells in the believer, what happens when the believer walks somewhere? Christ goes with him. So if, if a believer goes into the grocery store, where's Christ? In the grocery store. If he goes in the car, where's Christ? He's in the car. If he goes to the strip club, where's Christ? 
dragging his butt out of there is what he's doing. I hope. But think about that. Where you go, Christ goes with you. If that's true, then what you say, Christ is saying. What you do, Christ is doing. It should be in us that where we stop and God begins, we can't tell. Is that the reality of the world we're living in right now? No, 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 no. Because we don't fully grasp what these words mean. Okay, let's go to another one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, but the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you think that the early uh, um, saints, we'll call them, Old Testament saints, were walking around thinking, someday Messiah will live in me? No. What did you say? The mystery. It's been hidden from ages and from generations that has now been revealed. To them God willed to make the gen, uh, known to us the riches of glory, the mystery among the Gentiles. What was this mystery? Christ in us. What is the net result of Christ living in us? Let's look at another verse. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 17. Galatians 2 verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, who lives in us? Christ does. You see, these are not just colorful words. These are not just poetic words statements being made, hyperbole being thrown out. I would say, based off what we've read so far, where's Christ? He's in us. Let's look at another one, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in, uh, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now we all know this, we've heard it a million times. The carnal mind and bringing death, etc. But look what he says here in verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If the spirit of God, where does he dwell? In us. 
Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, that means he doesn't have to be, but he could be, there's a result. The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So where's the Spirit? And what does he do? He gives life to this mortal body. Do you think Paul is trying to get a message across here? When we pray, where do we pray to God? Oh, Lord, way up there, above the clouds. But where is he? We're praying one. We're thinking one. Let's look at another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. This will be the third time I am coming to you. So he's making sure that they understand it. I've been there before. I'm coming again. If you know anything about the Corinth and the church that was there, they were wackos. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. So what were they supposed to do? Test themselves to see if Jesus truly is in them. Do you think he's trying to get a message across? Of course he is. Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. It says, flee sexual immorality, and every sin that a man does is outside of the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, here's the thing. He is not making a theological statement to make sure you know that the Holy Spirit is in you. The statement he's making is that your body has been bought. You were bought with a price. You belong to God. But the Spirit of God is in you. How can you do that with the Spirit of God in you? That's his temple. Why are you not taking care of it? Why are you doing things against it? Do you think he's trying to get a message across? See, when Jesus said that I and the Father are one, that was a bold statement. And then when he talks about living in us, and Paul time and time again talks about him being in us. These are not cute words. These are not things that we we put up on, on flyers and we put up there, oh, Jesus lives in me. There is a result that is attached to this. It's the life of God in us. Physically we die, spiritually we're alive. We will never truly see death because that inner man is who we truly are. It's the supernatural. When the carnal drives the ship, we see the net result. The world around us is what we are seeing now. We'll see the church that is full of debauchery and sin, compromise, giving up the things of God, making exceptions. We will go after the things of the world. Why does the church not produce fruit? The pleasures of this world, the cares and riches. 
all of these things. Why? Because we're carnally minded. But what happens when we're spiritually minded? We produce some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. When we get our eyes back on Him in us, what that means, the life of God dwelling in us. So let's go to John chapter 17. This is where we're going to end today. As I said, we're just kind of setting this up as we go into this over the next several weeks. We've got to get an understanding of what this means. And here is Jesus praying. And it's, in my opinion, probably one of the most powerful prayers that is captured in Scripture because of what Jesus is saying. He's getting ready to go to the cross. John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, and that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know that you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he's coming back together, okay? But he's laying this out. I came and did everything that you did. I glorified you on this earth. If we stopped there and just asked ourselves, are we doing what Jesus did? Many of us could never make that statement because we're too caught up in the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of life. Let's go on, verse 6. I have manifested your name to them, whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now stop for a second. Praying for them is who? The disciples. All the people that have been given. He has hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of disciples at this point. But he doesn't pray for who? The world. The people that have rejected him. Okay? There's a difference. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Now what claim did he just make? I and the Father are one. What does he want for his disciples? That they be one, just like we are. Why is that? Because the church, being the body of Christ, is the express image of of God. Mankind was created to be the imager and representative of God. Israel was designed to be the representative of God. Jesus came and represented God. He just said it. I've done everything you've told me to. I have glorified you on this earth. Now, receive me back, but let them be as one just like we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That's the other Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, 
And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, he is setting a clear distinction here between the world and the church. And we've talked about this. But the idea that the body of Christ needs to dumb things down, water down the message, compromise in any way to try to reach the lost goes against what Jesus just said. They're going to hate you no matter what. So why are we compromising? We never should, but we constantly do. For our sake, he sanctifies himself. Here we go, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who's he talking about there? Look around the room. Every person that ever gave their life to Christ is a net result of the original 12 apostles get out there and spread the message of the gospel. We would not be here if it was not for what they did. If they had all just gone home and not gone and waited in Jerusalem until they were endued with power because there were scary things coming and the world was going to get ugly and it was going to be tough, if they had just gone home, we wouldn't be sitting here today. But they followed the mandate. I do not pray for these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Now watch this. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Man, that's powerful. That they, those who come after, may all be one. As you, Father, are in me. And I am in you, that they also may be one in us. We're the embodiment of God. Why does that matter? That the world may believe that you sent me. Now think about that. I'll come back here in a minute. What does Mark 16 say? (coughs) These signs will follow them that believe. At the preaching of the gospel, what happens? Signs follow. Why? Because we are the embodiment of Christ. That they will know that we are one. If you thought that those signs are just for us to have a good time in a church service, you are missing the boat. The world will know that we are one with God by the things that we do. (coughs) Let's go on. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, and that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. (coughs) Excuse me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Where's Christ? 
We have to understand what the net result is. Because we are not walking in the fullness of what it means to have Christ in us. The world does not know about the Father. The church has spent the last hundred plus years trying to do all of these things to get people to hear the gospel. Create events, an environment that was friendly and fun, that they can come in and they can just be comfortable, that they might hear the message. But that's not what Jesus said. They will know that God is here because of the relationship of what it means to have Christ in us, the hope of glory. How do we demonstrate that? What does that mean? How do we walk in that understanding? That we'll begin to talk about next week. But we've got to begin to think differently. We've got to begin to think biblically. The problem is, is because we've heard all these verses, most of us our entire lives have been quoted. And we just kind of think we get it, so we don't dig deeper. We just kind of accept it as truth, but we don't really drill into that. What does that actually mean? And what does that entail? The church is missing out on the power of God. And it's our fault. Because it's there. We just got to walk in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything that we need on this earth to be your representatives. Lord, I pray that you convict our heart to cut out the things and the people, Lord, that are drawing us away. There's too much nonsense in this world that's captured our hearts and our attention. But Lord, that we'll begin to understand truly what it means. That you are in us, you are with us, you are for us. So Lord, be glorified in everything that we do. It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. We'll see you Sunday.